Ashley and Theron are parents of three children, including Vigo Rick, who died at six months of complications related to trisomy 5P. In this conversation, they offer so much wisdom to other caregivers and suggestions to clinicians about what helps and what hinders parents of newborns born with very rare life-limiting conditions. Their insights and perspective are especially relevant to parents and clinicians caring for newborns for whom there is huge uncertainty about needs and prognosis. You will note in this story that the addition of palliative care was a game changer and helped Ashley and Theron find their agency and conviction in protecting and delivering their son his short but full arc of a life. Courageous Parents Network has the deep conviction that parents and providers of seriously ill children have the same goal, to give children the best possible chances to live their best possible lives. In all that we do, CPN strives to help these parents and providers mutually understand each other, communicate more effectively, and make decisions together. In so doing, CPN strives to improve the course of care, both given and received. My name is Ashley Waddell Tingstad. My name is Theron Tingstad. We're the parents of three children. We have a daughter, Rosa, who is eight years old right now. Our son, Leo, is five. And Vigo, our baby, was born in January 2022. Vigo passed away on July 18th, 2022. So he lived for six months and 10 days. We found out shortly after his birth that he was born with a rare genetic condition called trisomy 5P, and it affected every one of his cells, and that particular genetic mutation is pretty profound in terms of the way that it's expressed. He had a lot of health issues and surgeries, but the biggest one, or the one that was the most life-threatening, was his respiratory system. His whole airway was about 50% smaller than it should be. There was also a floppiness. They call it malacia as well. So it was pretty impossible for him to breathe like that without a lot of help. When you were told what he had, what were you told to expect for his life? Describe how you remember receiving the diagnosis, metabolizing it or not and what your thinking was. I mean, I think that it probably was not delivered in the best way. We did receive great care and we're very thankful for all the professionals who helped out. But first of all, his condition was so rare that they weren't quite sure what it was. And so we just kind of kept going down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out through genetic testing what it was. And then I think ultimately when it came back that it was this incredibly rare condition that maybe only affects one out of 20, 30, 40 million children born a year. I think our doctors and the medical professionals had a hard time telling us that this was essentially a terminal condition. The closest that they got was saying his prognosis was poor, which didn't mean to us the same thing that it would to someone who's trained in the medical profession. You feel like they were talking in coded language? It was interesting because they wanted to give us this diagnosis as soon as they got the results back. 
it had like come in that morning and they were sharing it immediately, but they didn't specifically know what it meant other than this printout that they had pulled down from Unique, which is a rare chromosome family advocacy group yeah. that tried to document where they could, the few children that have all these rare conditions. And so they had printed something out from Unique. And then I remember the geneticists walked in and I understand that they don't receive specific training for this. And I, and I really want that to change because I'm sure it was a hard thing for them to do. But they walked in and they were saying, this is so extremely rare. We've never seen it here. And we think that most babies who have this condition are miscarriages. The information's coming in and in that moment, you're sort of out of body because you know something really serious is being delivered here. And I'm holding Vigo. And they said, oh, this will cause uh, respiratory infections and developmental delay and physical delay and cognitive impairment and something, something. Even though we understand what it means, you know, we have good education and vocabulary, but it's still coded, right? What does developmental delay mean? He's eventually going to catch up. <laughs> That's not what it means, you know? I don't know if I asked, are you saying he's going to die? And they were like, no, no. I mean, he could live until he's maybe 14. He just threw out this random number 14. I was like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, for us, <laughs> our point of view is like, well, we expect that our child is going to outlive us. We thought, okay, well, maybe he'll be in a wheelchair. We're still trying to figure that out. But nobody had said like, he's going to die before you. That was the way that they said it. And then they said, well, you know, some kids who have severe genetic conditions with really good advances in care, and maybe they could live until they're 40. They were just sort of throwing out these numbers. Yeah. I remember them saying that and thinking, you don't know what you're talking about. And I don't understand anything of what you're talking yeah. about. And it's interesting. I feel like they were trying to give us hope, but they hadn't yet delivered the news that we were in a hopeless situation. It was as if they were trying to give us hope in anticipation of us wanting it and needing it, but they didn't tell us that we would even want or need it yet. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we're like, why are you handing us this hope? What do we need it for? You haven't told us what we need it for yet. That's the other thing they kept saying. And again, I think this is very much coming from a medical expert perspective, especially geneticists. You know, they try to consider a whole population, whatever the sample size is or whatever. They said, well, the really good news about having something so rare is that his outcome could be really different from the other three people that we have read about who died. That did not translate in that moment. Yeah, I believe the quote was, he could be the one that changes history because there's so little known, all it takes is one case to change things. I'm sure it was all very well-meaning, but it was too early. For that right first we need to understand what situation we were in that would require hope that would require that when people are afraid to talk about death what you end up getting is kind of a lot of random gobbledygook the way it lands or rather doesn't land the miss on parents everything you guys just said was so well said the field generally of palliative care and CPN's part of trying to make this happen in our tiny little way is to get clinicians to speak with compassion, but speak honestly and directly and with specificity 
to parents not using vain language, but to time it. Don't reframe hope for parents who don't know yet that they need it. How did you move into understanding what you might expect for Vigo's life? Ashley did do, especially on the outreach to other folks side, she did all of that and, and brought it back. I really dug into the academic material, mm-hmm. of which there wasn't much. There's only 40 cases, 40 individuals, and like three or four studies in the literature on his condition. There wasn't a whole lot to go off of there. There is a wide range of outcomes in children who have this. There is even a couple that walked, sort of. It's hard to know because without verifying that everybody had the same genetic makeup in Mm. terms of full 5p arm duplication and no mosaicism which can make a big difference we didn't know anything about genetics at this point the neonatologist came in first to sort of start to break the news that the cma had come back right before the geneticist showed up and she said so we got the genetics test back and i have some hard news to tell you it did come back that vigo has some extra genetic material And again, like we're smart people, but you know, extra genetic material, when you say it like that, I was like, is that good? Could it be okay? It's like, could it be innocuous? I don't know. (laughs) Turns out, spoiler alert, it's not good. So shortly after that conversation, which we pretty much encapsulated it for you, they left us with the printout from the unique website. And I was so much in shock. Like I really couldn't move. I was just holding Vigo and I like could hardly breathe. And Theron started thumbing through it very quickly. He's a fast reader. I broke down. Like I've never seen before. And I just remember thinking, this has to be a dream. I need to get out of this reality right now because this is too much. I mean, I don't think there's any way to deliver the news that your child is going to die. But the way that it was like so confusingly delivered did feel like it was extra trauma in that moment. And when I think back at my worst moments, of course, the diagnosis was one of the worst moments, but that feeling of being like, what are they saying? Unique happens to feature a little girl that that we now know better, who's in New Zealand. And she actually has done very well in terms of like, she can breathe. She can sometimes eat by mouth. That's pretty big deal. And at that point, Vigo was still using the CPAP. He was still on CPAP. They kept trying to wean him off and he couldn't handle the nasal cannula. They were just saying, well, every baby's different and we're doing the CPAP dance and this and that. We never considered that his breathing was so deeply affected until after that. But, you know, it talked about five of the 13 children in the study had died in their first year, period. There was no explanation of how they died. And so we were like, well, those odds aren't great. What are they dying from? One thing that Ashley said, and I just wanted to mention it before we forgot about it. She said that getting the news was one of the worst. Mm -hmm. How did you put it? Just one of the worst moments. For me as well. And there's a lot of really bad moments during his six month life of which I would say like his death was not the worst. Right. So I think that's important for people to understand. You know, you think that that would be the worst for him or for us, and it wasn't. 
I can really relate to that, Theron, and I appreciate your saying that. I imagine that a lot of parents live in fear of their child dying when they've already absorbed the thing that is worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long was Vigo in the NICU before he came home? 40 days for the first time. During that time, did they suggest that you have a consult with a palliative care doctor, nurse, or social worker? No, in fact, they did not. So we had this document that said very few babies were included in what was written in the document, maybe 13 at most. The outcomes were really scary and there was, you know, a lot of death. And so every single specialist that came in the room, including the neurologist, everybody, we would say, what does this document mean? And why are they dying? What are they dying from? How did these babies die? They were all like, no, we're not here to talk about that. And we're like, no, no, no. How do they die? Why are they dying? I was fixated on that because I needed to know what was fatal about this, right? I feel like the medical providers, the doctors and nurses who work in the NICU, maybe more in the PICU, they would have been able to talk about it, but nobody like broke it down in any way. So I remember we suddenly got on everybody's pity list and we were moved from our windowless tiny room to a corner window room (laughs) immediately. They were like, somebody moved this family. Mm -hmm. And we were like, oh God. This is what we had to do to get the good room. Yeah. Then they like arranged to let the kids and my mom come up because we had been separated as a family this whole time because of COVID, there was no visitation. Vigo still was not able to be weaned off of CPAP. At a certain point they said, okay, we think we need to do a bronchoscopy. From this point, nobody had suggested CPN, unfortunately, and nobody had suggested a palliative consult at all. Even just knowing that our baby was gonna be what they called a complex kid with many, many subspecialties involved. They did talk to us about enrolling him in their program, which is called the Little Victors Program, which is a bias towards surviving, obviously, and being victorious. This is a way for them to organize all the subspecialties because it's so complicated and talk to us about getting Medicaid. We started all those processes. And then he went for the bronchoscopy. When the ENT surgeon came to tell us that they were going to take him for a bronchoscopy, he said, while we're in there, while he's intubated, we could just pop a trach in if we see a need for it. referred to pop a trach in. Yeah. Nobody had really said your baby might need a trach or even what a trach means. I mean, I tried to have a conversation with one of the nurses about it. And first of all, the reactions were all like, uh, you know, and then she said, well, maybe it would just be like a trach, but not a vented trach. And I was like, wait, what does that mean? What is the difference? All this information is trickling in sort of backwards. And we're being offered to pop a trach in when we don't know what a trach is, what it means, what are the dangers, what are the advantages, disadvantages, what is vent versus not vent. So long story short, I said, no, do the bronchoscopy. And this seems like a very big decision that we're going to have to make later when we have gathered all the information. And the other thing that was at the same time, very frustrating for us is that all of these subspecialties would come in, say their little piece. And we would ask them questions and they would say, well, that's, that's really a question for, you know, neuro, or that's really a question for peed surge. And, you know, everybody was punting to the other person and we're, we're sitting there feeling like we can never leave this room because we're the only ones 
who are actually getting all of the information like we're the hub of information yeah how is this possible so how did we first hear about well when they came back with a bronchoscopy outcome which was just not good he would likely need a ventitrach that's whenever we wanted to have a care conference and my mother thank god is a retired nurse also a hospital administrator she has been with a lot of people when they die and she knows bad outcomes and she knows good outcomes and she became a very fierce advocate for us and for vigo and she sort of helped us think through like okay you want a care conference because you want everybody in the room you don't want anybody to be able to punt to somebody else everybody needs to be in the same room you need to have a palliative care consult we started asking everybody who came in the room we said we want to talk to palliative care we want to have a care conference there was a lot of resistance to that sort of felt like well we're not at the palliative care place yet i'm like I'm not saying we're all going to die right now. I'm just saying, can I talk to them? Can we have a consult? Why do I have to request this 17 times in order to get someone from the palliative care team to come into my room of my child who has a poor prognosis, whatever that means? And I think that that's why Ashley brought up the trach issue, because that was the first decision that we faced in terms of like, are there roads? Are there different paths? What path are we choosing? Why are we choosing it, right? Sometimes these medical professionals, the doctors, specialists as well, are like mechanics. And they're like, mm -hmm. I work on this part of the vehicle. And then another person works on this part of the vehicle. But nobody like is someone who looks at the whole vehicle. What is this vehicle driving for? What sort of experience is the vehicle having? Everybody just wants to fix something. Nobody wants to actually think about what is this person's actual experience, especially when I talk about my child, who I immediately love, was going to live somewhere between six months and three years, regardless of what we did. So now we have to make questions of what does that six months to three years look like? We then started to think what we want to look like. We wanted him home, we wanted him comfortable. There was a lot of veiled language around these decisions too. I remember the resident kept coming in and saying, we really want you to think about what your goals are for Vigo. We'll have a conversation. And it was that vague. And then she just, she just would leave. We didn't understand what that meant. That my child might be able to roll over, hold up his head, say a word. I was thinking in terms of developmental goals and not, do you want to intervene and do invasive interventions or do you want to do comfort care? That is, I learned later, most likely what she was referring to. Yeah. But that was never explicitly said. So there's a lot of coded language that is not helpful. Even when people are trying to be helpful. I really appreciate that you just said that, Ashley, because in the field of palliative care, well, just care generally, they say, find out what the patient's goals of care are. As a clinician, people get trained to know what that means. So they use that language, but they don't then make it specific for the parent or patient or loved one who has not been trained in what goals of care mean. So I think part of it is that they throw it onto you, assuming you'll know, but it's also a way of avoiding the specifics that they don't want to say. And we try to be very approachable very conversational, you know, but I think it was too sad too. It was just sad for them. One 
doctor said to me at one point, you're living every mother's nightmare. Was that helpful or not helpful? It really acknowledged what I was going through. When I told other people about that, they were sort of horrified that a doctor would say that, but she was a mother too. She had tears in her eyes and she was genuine. So I actually thought it was helpful because for a moment she was acknowledging our experience and not just dissecting my baby. And saying it in non-coded language. I mean, instead of saying, I understand that this may be a relatively difficult time. You know, if somebody had said like, there's two roads to go down. One of them is your child's life is going to be short and comfortable. And the other one, your child's life is gonna be maybe a little bit longer and very uncomfortable. The reason why I realized what she meant was interventions versus comfort is because I found this group on Facebook. 99% of it was very unhelpful. It was less than 300 members for trisomy 5P, but most of the members are children with partial duplication. Some of them much, much smaller, like very small in terms of how they're affected mostly. And then there were like eight of the full 5P arm kids yeah, on there. The, the whole world. Really, and yeah. I contacted the one mom who ended up being like an amazing resource for me. And no surprise, she's a social worker in Canada. But her first question was, are you gonna do interventions or comfort? She put it in those terms and I was like, what? What do you mean by that? I talked to a couple other moms in Canada, just, I don't know why that is how it happened, but they all use that language. So I don't know if it's something more common there, but I thought that was really helpful because I was like, now we're getting somewhere. Now I have some concepts to think about. And then I started communicating directly with four moms. They had a lot to say about their child's experience, lots and lots of details about long hospitalizations, hospitalizations for over like 50% of their first year, respiratory infections, septic shock, long bone occult fractures, treatment resistant epilepsy, hydrocephalus, you know, the list goes on, but those were some of the most serious things that were causing folks to just sort of repeatedly land in the PICU, repeatedly end up in ambulances, repeated codes. And all that is so relevant, right? Because then you know, like, okay, if I choose one path, my child is going to experience all these things. Right. No doctor, no nurse, no anyone was able to give us that kind of information. I had to look up every other word they were texting me. I did not know any of these words. I didn't know what a VP shunt was, and I didn't know what Ativan and all these other medicines and what it meant to bag somebody. And it gave me all this vocabulary words to research, to understand what's an IOIV. What is, oh, that's intraosseous. That's when they punch it through your tibia. I never even knew that existed. I was starting to educate myself on all of that, the different types of seizures. I would then bring all that information to Theron, who was trying to work at the same time. But then I started asking nurses. And then they would share information with me about their experience with these different types of conditions. That was invaluable, invaluable. Just one example is a tracheostomy is a tool. It's a tool that is appropriate. Maybe in some circumstances, it's life-saving and it can be the right choice, but it's a tool that can also not always fit every life and every condition in every family. 
that's not how it was presented to us. It was just sort of like, we can pop a trachea. That's what you do. Or that's what you do if you're an ENT surgeon, <laughs> you know, who doesn't know anything else about your very complex kid that I never heard of this condition. The mechanics sort of mindset. Yeah. And as well, there's an awful lot of complications. I mean, Vigo, he did require 24-7 care, but mm -hmm. if he had been, for example, vented and traked, he would have required even more intense 24-7 care. Medicaid will cover paying for that, but there's a labor shortage and there are no nurses. And that's information that isn't out there. We got a designation from Medicaid that said that we would have 56 hours a week of nursing mm -hmm. paid for, and that was great. And we could cover maybe eight hours. We could find somebody to cover eight hours. And then we had to private pay people who weren't nurses to come at night so we could sleep. And then we still probably ended up staying up three, maybe four nights a week. We were able to rely more on lay people and nursing students and stuff like that because we didn't have that level of complexity. I just feel like the whole approach with this circumstance was sort of backwards and inside out. You're trying to think through a problem and you think all these things and think and think and think, and you sort of like get to the bottom line. We have to think about interventions. What do interventions mean in this body with this condition and this prognosis or comfort? And what does comfort look like in this body with this prognosis? That was sort of like where we ended up, but we had to get there ourselves. I've heard doctors say, you know, we don't want parents going onto the web. It's unregulated out there, but thank God there was this community of parents who spoke very, very honestly with you, Ashley, about what life was like for these children with the version of trisomy 5P that Vigo had, because that was your only visibility into what it would mean for your son. I call this sort of like mother's intuition. I think sometimes mothers might feel or know in their heart my child is going to be able to fight and we're going to find a cure. We're going to find a way for them to reach this full potential. In my soul, I felt so deeply that he was not going to be exceptional and that he was not going to be spared these outcomes. I knew in my soul that their story was going to be his story. So I was like, we've got this time where he's not having seizures, where he doesn't have to be sedated or medicated. And this is maybe going to be the best time of his life. I mean, after reading and learning the long list of medications that other children were on just to get through the day, I felt like he was having a fairly simple moment of his life where we didn't have all those medications and that one day it was going to become more complex. Also, when we learned with the bronchoscopy that his bronchioles were 50% closed, that also gave me new information because the children I had been comparing him to, none of them needed high flow to breathe. Yeah. And so that gave me information about what a respiratory infection would mean for Vigo. When other children were hospitalized for 40 days for a respiratory infection, what would that mean for him with his bronchioles? That was also really helpful, obviously, to start to understand what this is gonna look like. Some of the things about how the trach were presented to us, if I was just in a hopeful sort of naive mind, which I was at the beginning, it sounded like 
if he got a trach, he wouldn't have to go to the hospital when he got a respiratory infection. Like it sort of sounded like that would fix the problem, right? It'd fix the respiratory problem. So if he got a cold, we just keep him home and it was gonna be easier and there were gonna be less infections and less hospitalizations. And what I learned from quizzing nurses and doing my own research was that the opposite is true. There's more hospitalizations. There can be longer respiratory infections that colonize the lungs that never, ever go away. And maybe if you're dealing with somebody who has a normal immune system, but just like a muscular problem, that might look different. But with a child who is prone to severe respiratory infections and has smaller bronchioles, it's going to be really dangerous. And again, I had to connect those dots. No one else did that for me. But most doctors afterwards would say, if my kid was going through this, this is the way that I would want them to live their life as well. It's too bad that for whatever reason, you can't give that information before to help not bias, but inform my decision. Because I don't have the same vantage point that you do. I haven't seen 20 kids come through here with a similar condition and struggle and have very uncomfortable lives before they eventually pass, you know? I mean, clearly, clearly the two of you were amazing advocates for him living in the NICU as you were and, you know, investigating and filling in the holes that nobody else was even naming. When we did finally meet the palliative care attending, it was like, like giant sigh of relief. We started feeling less like such a rare thing that no one could ever make any prognosis statements or predictions to, no, this is very rare, but this is like all these other things that we see. And based on what we know about Vigo, this is how he would likely die. We were able to sort of like, not backwards plan, but understand the points of suffering. What kinds of decisions will we have to make? We didn't have a DNR in place or anything. We didn't have that conversation until we talked to the palliative care doctor the first time. So there's different levels, right? And ultimately got to the point, I think we were like, okay, yes for epinephrine, yes for vagium, no for intubation. When you see baby CPR, it's like, here's somebody pushing on a baby's chest like this, boop, boop, boop. And it's like, oh no, their, their ribs are going to probably break. The reason why we wouldn't allow that, it'd be one thing if we thought, oh, you're going to do that. And then he's going to recover. He's going to recover. And then his ribs will heal. Yeah. Or he's going to die. And do you want his last moments to be somebody breaking his ribs? It's impossible to even wrap your head around the impact of these conversations, but I will say the only person who had them adequately was our palliative care attending doctor. There were several attendings who were amazing, but until they came into our sphere, we were alone and we were flailing. I just wish that they would have arrived before they did. Another decision that we had to make was around intubation and we decided that we did not want to do intubation. Most people have been intubated. If you talk to them, they say it's an absolutely excruciating experience. And that's with them in their right minds 
understanding that it's necessary to keep them alive, et cetera. For a baby, it's a very difficult thing. And then for a baby who it may not make a big difference in whether they live or die, like, do you want to put them through that? So we said we weren't going to do that. And then ironically, these two decisions kind of came together because he developed a hernia. It was causing him pain. So Ashley called the hospital and the doctors and their schedulers, and she organized to have two surgeries at once. Have the doctors operating, you know, they were like in rooms next to each other and they would just swap out like that. They did the heel release and the hernia surgery basically at the same time. The operation was successful. Mm -hmm. And then they told us, go grab a coffee and meet us down in his room. We'll bring him to the room. And then we were super excited and we got a call five minutes later. You need to get down to the room right now. And we got down there and he was not doing well. He needed to be intubated just for the procedure under anesthesia. The anesthesiologist pulled the tube out too soon, meaning Vigo was not recovered enough yet from either the anesthesia or the trauma of the surgery to breathe enough on his nasal cannula. And so he essentially started dying right in front of us. And we had to make a snap decision. They said, do you want us to try to reintubate right now to save him? That was a very harrowing situation because he was laying on the bed, completely gray, not moving at all. There was 15 people in the room and they're working on him. And then our palliative doctor came in and we ultimately told them to reintubate him because we kind of looked at this still as like the aftermath of the surgery. And I think also it's a hard decision to make while you're sitting there watching, right? And we weren't ready for this yet. And it was really traumatic. Five different doctors took him six attempts to get that tube in him because his structure is so compromised. Nobody could do it. Finally, this one doctor, I didn't even know. They called in the difficult airway team. The NICU fellow and the NICU attending failed. And the anesthesiologist tried and failed. Then the whole room was full of people, so full of people. Finally, I guess it was an ENT surgeon who got it in. In the chart, it says four separate doctors, six separate attempts to to re-intubate, which just is bad news for the airway and for extubation. They kept him intubated for 48 hours after that on steroids to bring down the swelling. And he, you know, was waking up and writhing, face was all red. And we had to like keep hands on him between the two of us and the nurses, literally like keep hands on his body the whole time because he was so, his eyes were bloodshot. It was awful to watch him writhe on the tube. The extubation was scheduled for 48 hours later. So it was a morning and they were allowing my mom and my grandma and his parents to come in to be there with us because he might not make it. Yeah. Right. After seeing what happened and how hard that was. Yeah. You'd think there'd be a lot of buildup like, oh my God, we're going to excavate. But he was writhing so much. All we wanted was just to get the tube out. Just get it out now. The team was in there. They were ready. And we're just like, go for it. This is about Vigo and Vigo needs this tube out. They pulled it and he breathed and all was well, but right before they pulled it, he was writhing so much. It was rough. In a way, we're grateful for that experience because that taught us 
about Vigo. How will it be for Vigo to have an emergency intubation if he's already sick? How will it be for him in that context if we were in the best context already in the NICU, only anesthesia, you know, and he's healthy, right? So we learned a lot from that experience mm -hmm. that really helped us. Because we'd agreed that once we pulled this out, it wasn't going back. It became very relevant three months later when he was dying. That was then our decision. We're not going to intubate him. And it was very quick. I mean, the, the whole thing happened over five hours, but he was only uncomfortable for a short period of time. Can you describe what happened? What you were confronted with as his parents and what you chose for him because this was what your love looked like. Vigo was home after that first code, after a surgery, he was home for the months of May and June, which were beautiful, fun months. We were able to like get him outside and it was great. Get him in a stroller a lot. And then he, at the beginning of July, he was starting to develop hydrocephalus. So there were some issues with that. His fontanelle was still open, so it wasn't an emergency surgery yet. But he also developed rhinoenterovirus. And we were in the PICU for nine or 10 days with the rhinoenterovirus, getting intensive care, which looked like a lot of suctioning, supportive care, they call it, right? So it just was a lot of like NP suctioning, which is down the nose. It's deep and it's uncomfortable. And it was horrible to watch that. We did that for nine days. And again, that was sort of like, we had to actually sign out of hospice to go into the PICU and receive supportive care. And that was fine. Our palliative care doctors were supportive and we were all there. And we said, you know what? Let's see if we can get him through this illness without it being too terribly uncomfortable and just you know, hope for the best. So we got him home and we thought the worst was over. We had actually survived the first respiratory infection and we kept him comfortable. And two days after we were home, he spiked a fever and suddenly went into total respiratory distress. He was coughing a lot. So we rushed to the ER and they were able to stabilize him on CPAP. He did have some type of secondary infection, but it wasn't determined exactly what that was yet. So we were readmitted to the PICU sort of knowing that, okay, we're going to just be here for a while, figure out what's going on, see how we can help him. We went to sleep. It was 2.30 in the morning. We've slept in the room with him, very relieved that he was finally asleep and comfortable. At 4.30, Theron actually was the one who woke up first, if you want to talk about that part. I just woke up, and his numbers just took a nosedive, like, as I was watching him. You know, by this point, we're like experts in VO and all the machines. We know everything out of it. And I just like never seen these sorts of numbers and like was like double checking everything. And I'm like, this is real, right? Because sometimes you see a number dip, but then the other ones don't. So you're like, well, it's not possible that, their heart, that, their, that their heart rate is fine, but their oxygenation is 29%. Like, that's not right, you know? But everything was going down in sync. And then the nurse ran in and must have hit a button, like a code button. And then there was... It was a replay of the oh. surgery. Everybody was in the room and they're trying different breathing apparatuses like masks and bags masks and bags. And they did the epinephrine because we had authorized that. And then it kind of got came to the point very quickly that they said we would need to try to intubate him at this point. 
And I don't know how at 4.30 in the morning, Taryn and I looked at each other, making the most consequential decision of our lives. And we both said no. We both knew. I know I experienced an intense desire for all those people to get away from my baby so that I could hold my baby. And we had for months, for all these months with palliative care and also just sort of with hospice and being in that setting, we had had the opportunity to think through how do we want to be present for him? And we we're very, very fortunate because they had a, what's called a transition room that was very close to his room. And so basically we said no, and it immediately went to, let's get you in the transition room. Transition room is this beautiful room that's not supposed to feel like a hospital, nice candle lighting and a big king size bed. And we were able to crawl in that bed with him. And we were able to hold him and tell him how much we love him and sing to him. And my mom and his dad and stepmom arrived just in time. And for the transition room, all the monitors are in the hallway. So we didn't have to see them. Even though they had this mask that was pushing air into him, they said, his numbers are dropping. And they said, we, we think when we take this mask off, it's going to happen quickly. And I just remember, again, being like, take it off of him. I just, I wanted it off of him in that moment so he could be at peace. We took the mask off and he almost just sighed like, like a release. And he died in moments and we were holding him and loving him and being able to give him a peaceful death is something that was really, really important for us. We could not give him a peaceful birth, but we were able to give him a peaceful death and knowing that he was loved and he is loved and he was comfortable and he felt safe with us. And that is the most important thing. It has not made our grief any less. It hasn't changed that, but it does give us some comfort. And I feel like it also reduces the potential trauma that could have been there for us if he had sort of a traumatic medical death. You know, these journeys are filled with roads not taken. I think we got the best outcome for Vigo's comfort, but it's hard for us. When you turn down a medical intervention that's offered, you have to take the responsibility for that. And you have to, on your hard days, live with what if. That's why it's really important to go back to all the reasons why you didn't choose it and all of the like loving thoughtfulness and heart-wrenching sleepless nights that got you there. What I've learned in this experience, whether you intervene or you don't, you're making a decision. You're playing God in some ways in order to like default or to not feel any type of accountability or responsibility as a parent, we can default to like more intervention, more intervention, more intervention, because we don't want to feel guilty and we don't want to wonder. And I would have those moments where I'd be like, but I, 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 and then I kept trying to bring it back to what is Vigo's experience? Is this about his experience? Not about mine. We kind of came up with these central decision-making tenets for him. And one of them was his subjective experience is the center. It is first. 
that could look so different for different children and different families. I don't think that there's any one right choice or wrong choice because every family and every child is different. But if we as parents are trying to center our child's experience every day with every choice, I don't see how we can go wrong. There's so much normative judgments out there about like, this should never happen to a parent. This should never happen to a baby. No baby should ever die. And it's wrong and it's bad. And, and people should be able to live until they're a ripe old age of 95 and die in their sleep. And if, if anything less than that happens, we're just, this is horrible. You know, I had to stop and think. We as humans have been here for many thousands of years and many people have died and it's just not everybody's lifespan to live until they're 95 and die in their sleep. In fact, most people don't get that. We cling to the number and we say, if we don't get to the magic number, then somehow they died too young or it's a tragedy. But Vigo lived his whole life. He left an indelible mark. That was his beautiful life. And it doesn't matter that it was only six months because it was perfect and full. We just need something better than linear time to measure the fullness and goodness of life. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.